Hey guys, this is God Sad for the Sad Truth. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening in the world. So oftentimes you feel guilty when you talk about anything other than the suffering that's happening somewhere actually in my in my backyard. And to some extent, you also have roots there, uh, Jillian. Uh, but we need, life goes on. Uh, I've got today with me, arguably the biggest fitness and well-being guru in the United States, Jillian Michaels. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to, for the three or four people who don't know who you are, let me just read. <laughs> now, some of these, some of these uh, metrics, I don't get envious, but I think you could consider yourself envied. Home workout oh. DVDs have sold 100 million copies. Is that, is that right? Did I get that number right? A hundred million? Well, remember, DVDs were a different time, so you couldn't just stream everything for free on YouTube. So, yeah. Look at her trying to be all <laughs> modest. No, it's true. It's the truth. Now it's a very different game. But at that time, yeah, you're, you were able to better establish a monopoly in the space, if you will. And that's how uh, I think I, I pulled I hear it you. off. Emmy-nominated TV personality who has starred in several hit TV shows, creator of the fitness app, host of the Keeping It Real Conversations with Jillian Michaels podcast, I've been honored to be on it twice. Sega one should be dropping soon. Am I right? Absolutely right. right. I, I believe, I think it's, I think it might be next week, actually. Oh, right. I'm so excited. Great conversation as always. And then finally, eight time New York best selling author, eight times. <laughs> eight times. Yeah. Also, when, when you couldn't get, um, when you couldn't get fitness and nutrition advice, uh, on the web quite so easily. Books were the best avenue to educate yourself in that arena. So again, I was able to be successful in that space at that time. Maybe we could start there. So how, what was your journey to become the, the expert that you are in terms of fitness and well-being? And to our point, some of your answers that you're giving now so modestly is that, you know, the ecosystem is now very cluttered, whereas perhaps when you came in, you had the first mover advantage. So tell us that whole story so that people know your story. I absolutely did. Um, well, the, the interesting part is that if we talk about your new book, you know, about happiness and you discuss pursuing a career that brings you purpose, this was a very purposeful path for me because as a kid, I struggled with my weight and it was rooted in family dynamics. Um, and it wasn't until my mom had the foresight to get me into martial arts, not for my weight, but rather as an avenue um, to build self-worth, self-esteem, resilience. I lost weight over the course of several years, but I learned to appreciate fitness as transcendent you know the more i felt strong physically the stronger i felt in other facets of my life so at 17 i was training for my black belt because i had started karate at like 12 and um people would see me in the gym and they thought i was a trainer so they would ask me you know how much do you charge and i'm thinking like for what <laughs> and i ended up taking on personal training clients for $15 an hour. And luckily my mom had the foresight to suggest I get some sort of credential. So she paid for my first fitness training certification through a company called ACE. And it really sort of took off from there very organically. I had a brief, I wasn't too brief actually, about five year period in my twenties where I went through the, you know, I should get a real job thing. Never been more miserable 
as you suggest in your book, right? Never made less money. Uh, and the long and the short of it is that I ended up back in fitness, opened up a sports medicine facility by the time I was 30, and then ended up on TV by the time I was 31. And here we are. How did you get on TV? Was it was there a particular path or was it just the serendipity of life? Um, it was the serendipity of life. So that foray into a quote, real and responsible job was in the entertainment industry. So I ended up meeting a lot of agents and one of them was training at my gym, the, the sports medicine facility that I'd opened also had a personal training facility. And he heard about the show on NBC and he's like, you should really go in for this. And I actually hate reality TV, can't stand it. And I hated the name, The Biggest Loser, so I didn't wanna go in. I was like, this is gross. I hate this name. I hate reality TV. So he convinced me to go. He's like, what do you have to lose? Just, just go, you don't have to take the job. And I ended up getting the job. And the long and the short of it is, you know, a blessing and a curse, if you will. So it gave me this incredible platform, but it also had some significant downsides, which is why I ended up leaving the show for the third and final time, I believe in 2014. Uh, but it was through that crappy job that I ended up making the connections to establish uh, a public platform on television. So yeah, pretty serendipitous. Wow. Uh, so, so going to the second part of that question, which was, you know, what are your thoughts about how cluttered the space is today? Before you answer that, uh, let me just kind of contextualize it in other situations. So for example, when I first came into the, uh, you know, the long form, you know, podcast genre, there were very, very few people who were doing law. I mean, yeah, of course there was Joe Rogan and certainly in academia, there was no one, uh, no one. that I'm aware of now, you know, Fast forward 10 years later, I probably received, you know, 50 invitations, uh, uh, you know, a week to, to appear on podcasts. And many times it's just someone that just opens up their laptop and says, I've got a new podcast because the, the barrier to entry is so small. You just need a laptop. You need to. And so what that creates is a difficult situation. I mean, from my perspective, who should I be saying yes to? On the one hand, you want to promote and encourage people to find their voice. So you're saying, hey, get out there, your voice matters, start something. But on the other hand, if everyone thinks they've got something interesting to say, if everybody wants to be the next Joe Rogan or Jillian Michaels, then you very quickly get overwhelmed with requests. So in the fitness environment, I think it's the same thing. Everybody is a fitness life coach. Everybody has their own personal stories. So how do we navigate in, in trying to decide who is the real deal Jillian Michaels and who are all the faux folks who are peddling all kinds of nonsense to us? The first thing I would look for in an expert is education and then passion. Because at the end of the day, if you're turning to somebody for advice, you need to make sure that advice is credible and safe. So we want it to yield results, right? But we want you to achieve those results as safely as possible. And that's why in my line of work at this point, I don't even, I wouldn't even recommend trainers with a weekend certification, even though that's how I got my start. And all the more to the point is how ignorant I was with a weekend certification 30 years later, how much I've had to learn and I appreciate the fact that now I think somebody tr 
training somebody else should have a degree period i i would look for a degree in exercise science i just think you know when you're messing with your health in any way mentally or physically you need a person who is very well educated and then beyond that you want to make sure that they're passionate about what they do so that you know they're being authentic with their message because so much of the healthcare system has been corrupted um, and you know we can get into that or not but it's it's a huge problem and you also need to identify with the person who's working with you so you feel safe and you feel motivated to take their advice and continue onward with it okay what about so i was now i was talking about the clutter of the entrance into the space but how about mm -hmm. the clutter of the actual content of the information that we're each exposed to right so i can take yeah. any prescription that you could think of and i can show you two experts that prescribe the exact opposite eggs are good for you eggs are bad for you coffee's good for you coffee's bad for you statins are good for you you should never take statins. Cholesterol is is the is the curse when it comes to heart disease. Cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. And it's not quacks who don't have the degrees. I can bring you absolutely certifiable experts that exactly enunciate the opposing position on anything you could think of. It applies to fitness, it applies to diet, it applies to nutrition. So how is the average person to navigate through that conundrum? Well, the first thing is, what's their motivation? Because oftentimes, if you follow the money, you know, when you're reading different studies, who funded it and why, right? Are these doctors being paid by big food? Are they being paid by big pharma? Is the trainer on your Instagram recommending a skinny tea because they were paid to do so? Follow the money. Right. And then if it's like, well, everybody just has a unique opinion that's pretty rare it really is because i can answer those questions about coffee and eggs the truth is generally in the middle it's a balance eggs are pretty darn good for you actually unless you are according to dr agatston who i believe is one of the greatest cardiologists in the world right now unless you have a genetic predisposition to hyper absorb cholesterol eggs are great for you and we've pretty much established that. But things like coffee, if you're up to 400 milligrams a day, we know that you're okay, right? We know that that's fine, organic coffee, because it's the most heavily sprayed crop in the world. It's usually common sense and the truth falls in the middle. But when you're hearing information that is really polarizing or vastly divergent or doesn't ring true in your gut, it's generally motivated by money, whether somebody is trying to kind of make noise by being contrarian, because you see a lot of that too. Oh, I eat only meat. Like, well, that's going to make a lot of noise. And then you find out, oh, I eat only liver. And the guy's on hormones and steroids. It's like common sense will usually guide you to the truth. But if somebody has the credentials, that's why you really need to check their motivation. Like, what are their interests? Are they being uh, corrupted? by outside financial influences, if you will. Got you. Okay, what are, so I'm going, I think we might've discussed uh, my weight loss journey on your show, if I if I remember correctly. But for those of us, for those folks who may not be familiar, I'm, I'm going to share my weight loss journey. And you tell me if, you know, that is pretty much the standard way, you know, there's no magic recipe or whether there's something that I might've missed that yeah. could have added to, <laughs> can, I, can I go ahead and mention Please what it is? do it. Hit so me. I basically did 
I still do about 15 to 20,000 steps a day, which can come in any variety of ways. It could be just walking with my wife. It could be I'm on the treadmill. It could be on a stationary bike. I'm always tracking my movement in a day. Now, of yeah. course, as you know, probably better than anyone, that only covers about maybe 10% of your, I mean, you can't outrun, as they say, a bad diet. So the other, the second part is that I try to eat by tracking all my calories, about 15 to 1700 calories a day of largely protein and some, you know, vegetables and rarely also some fruits, not too much carbs. And just doing that, I ended up from my heaviest weight to my lightest that I've gotten. There was a fluctuation of or drop of 86 pounds over, you know, 18 months to 24 months period. Is it nothing but that? Have I have I struck the, the the magic recipe or is there something that I'm missing that can actually improve that journey? It's nothing but that. And people will try to tell you that it is, but I promise you it isn't. And I can address any question you have. About, well, what about hormones? And what about this brain disease that people are now claiming obesity is? It is a chicken and an egg conversation. Of course, your hormones, your entire endocrine system gets disrupted when we have excess adipose tissue or excess body fat. So yes, you start to kind of dig yourself into a bit of a hole and it's slow going on the way out to begin to reverse your biochemistry, right? You might become insulin resistant. You might develop PCOS. A host of things can happen when we become overweight, making it harder to lose weight. So let's say the car is in reverse in that situation, right? We got to get it into neutral, then into first, then second, then third, then fourth. But when you do the things you're talking about, we can gradually begin to climb out of the hole and get the car from reverse into drive. And by continuing onward, controlling your calories in, moving more, right? Burning more calories, getting more calories burning out. It's really kindergarten math and common sense. And anybody who tells you otherwise is selling you something. And I wrote that book on hormones and metabolism, and it was a master, it was called Master Your Metabolism, monster bestseller. I wrote it with an endocrinologist. But at the end of the day, it is eat less, move more, and use common sense with your food choices. It is that simple, period. So it is, I mean, you you are a proponent of the calories in calories out if 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 my basal rate is 2200 calories if i eat yeah. 1700 i'm 500 down do that for seven days i'm 3500 down therefore i'm one pound less fat is that is that the math pretty much it can vary a little bit and some people will argue like well hold on how come my boyfriend can eat whatever he wants and never gain weight Yes, we all have a different basal metabolic rate. That's not a genetic disease. And it's not a um, genetic uh, predetermination of like, oh, you're gonna be overweight. This is just not the truth. So I, for example, I burn 1300 calories a day. If I didn't move at all, right? My brother burns 2000 calories a day. I don't have a genetic disease because I burn less. I just unfortunately am in my late forties. I'm five foot two and I'm 115 pounds. I don't get to eat as much as he does at five foot 11 at 31 years old as a man. That's just life. 
And people think, oh, this isn't fair, therefore I have a disease. Or I don't want to take responsibility, therefore I have a disease. And these doctors are telling me I have a disease, so therefore I must have this disease. But the reality is you don't have a disease. Obesity is not a disease. It's just simply we are eating more than our body can manage. It is that simple. I'm not saying it's easy because we eat too much for a variety of reasons, which are pretty complex actually. But losing weight is really an energy equation. Health is a bit of a different story. So if we ate nothing but Twinkies, right? There's a diet called the Twinkie diet by a professor of nutrition. I believe his name is Mark Haub. And he illustrated that he could eat nothing but crap, Twinkies, it was called the Twinkie diet, and still lose weight because he ate less of them. Exactly. And he did, he did improve his biomarkers, his total cholesterol went down and all the things. But skinny people also have type 2 diabetes, right? And heart disease and cancer. So that's where the quality of your food comes into play is your overall health. But you can shrink by eating less and moving more. And it's still better for you at the end of the day. Right. Uh, so the, I guess there's a two-pronged approach as to why people sing some of the stuff that you're talking about. The yeah. obesity is a disease removes the agency from me. I can't control the fact that I have a disease. Therefore, you know, it is what it is. And therefore, it's external locus of control. The, the second thing, which is arguably as insidious, if not more, is the yeah. argument that I am healthy and beautiful at any weight. And I think that's where you got into trouble with the perfectly weighted Lizzo, because it would be wrong for us to say that a 840 oh. pound woman is the wrong weight. Gosh. She's beautiful, she's strong, she's healthy. And there's absolutely no medical proof that being 400 pounds overweight has any negative downstream effects. Of course, I'm being satirical, but yeah. it, aren't those the two the the two frontal attacks that actually are terribly harmful to people, right? You want my physician yeah. to tell me, hey, God, you have to start losing weight. You have young kids. I, imagine if he said, no, God, you are perfect at 250 pounds. Don't you dare lose a pound. It's a disease. You can't do anything about it. Well, here's what's really scary is that if your doctor does suggest that you have to lose weight, it can be considered racist or ableist. So doctors are now terrified to say anything at all. But conversely, enter Ozempic, Monjarno, all of these semaglutide and weight loss drugs, they're now being financially motivated to say, aha, hold on, it's a disease. And if you take these drugs, they'll help you lose the weight because you can't do it any other way because you have a disease. Um, and in fact, uh, new research is coming out. There have been many articles written that doctors are clamoring to get into this business because they can easily make over $700,000 a year prescribing Ozempic. Um, and if a doctor even discusses obesity with a patient, they can bill Medicare, I think, an extra amount just for having that conversation. It's very financially motivated for a host of reasons. So conversely, it's like, oh, you're healthy at any size. Oh, wait, no, 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 it's actually a disease. You can't have it both ways, right? But the healthy at any size conversation, I believe comes from virtue signalers who you know, go on Ozempic to lose 10 pounds, 
but you are beautiful at 400 pounds. You go girl and buy my product and watch my show. That's, everybody knows that's bullshit. So that's literally nefarious simply because people wanna be liked, so they say it. And the people who are feeling hurt and who have been marginalized because they're overweight, which is very real, um, turn to victimhood because it absolves them, as you said, and or are like, I'm healthy at any size and I was born this way because that makes them feel better. Instead of somebody giving them the empathy that is required, which is like, listen, I understand this is scary. I understand it's painful. I understand you've been marginalized. But let's let's put all that aside because if you really love yourself, right, then you would work out because you love your body, not because you hate your body. You would want everything great that life has to offer you, which is vastly improved through physical health. So let's get to the bottom of where you're struggling and let's help you improve and take all of the blame game out of it. That's really the conversation that needs to be had, but it doesn't financially benefit anybody. So taking Ozempic or doing the, the bariatric surgery, uh, I think the, the the most famous example of sort of a show that does that is the 600, my life, my life yeah. 600 pounds. Uh, at what point, if a client came to see you, and I, I think we touched on this in on my most recent appearance on your show, where I was talking about locus of control, where, you know, I don't want to take a pill because then I feel like I've lost rather than me making the lifestyle decisions to address the issue. At what point would you go to someone, notwithstanding that, yes, you should improve your diet, yes, you should exercise more, I think for you, taking that pill is a good idea or getting that surgery makes sense? Or would you never say that there's always only lifestyle interventions that will get you to the promised land? You know, I've had a host of these conversations with doctors that I greatly respect and trust. Um, I had this conversation with Dr. Peter Atia, Dr. William Lee, and Dr. Casey Means, because I trust all three of them implicitly, and I don't believe they're compromised in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I'll speak specifically on my conversation with Dr. Lee at the moment. And his answer is as follows. He said that we should look at this as honestly a life or death intervention only with regard to the drugs in particular, because the consequences and the side effects are extremely severe, largely unknown in the long term. It's like, oh, well, you only get, only a small percentage get thyroid cancer, only a small percentage get stomach paralysis, only a small percentage get pancreatitis. Only, is, <laughs> you guys fucking kidding? You gotta be on these drugs forever. There's no getting off of them. It's a lifetime patient. And we know from all the meta-analysis, all the studies that if people get off, they gain it all back and then some. That's that's already been shown. So you gotta be on for the rest of your life. The side effects are pretty scary and extreme and we don't even know what it looks like being on it for 10 years. They're now prescribing it for children 12 and up, which is just ter flat out terrifying. This is Ozempic so, you're talking about? Okay. And other weight loss drugs right. and even surgery, by the way. Right. So they're going after our kids, which could not be scarier. And in, in Dr. Lee's opinion, he was saying to me, listen, Jill, if we had somebody that was on the verge of death and we needed to run an immediate intervention while hitting them, you know, on a myriad of fronts, psychologically, physically, like working on the problem, 
where you need to be working on it, right? Like what's driving them to eat? Because you've got to get to the bottom of what the problem is. He's like, but if we needed to create an immediate intervention, then that's where I would recommend it. And that's only when I would recommend it. And because I, I, you know, I don't deal in opinions. I only deal in data. I'm not an idiot. I defer to him. I trust him completely. And I believe that to be the best way forward gotcha. with those drugs. What about when, so on the show, the 600 pound show, mm. uh, the, the physician often will say, you know, uh, you need to go into psychotherapy to understand the emotional pain. And I'm often quizzical when I see that because, really? well, I, well, so and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Okay. In many cases, I think that one can draw a causal link between someone's food hoarding and some emotional issues that might cause that food hoarding. But I also think that food is a very pleasurable thing, right? So it could yes. well, it could well be that my lack. And again, I'm not trying to play the play, blame game. No, do I, it. I, I, hit, right, hit it all. Right. So you know, if I eat. It's a very direct pathway to the pleasure center of my brain. And so there is no other way to become 600 pounds than through an incredible orgiastic set of decisions every single day <laughs> that are causing me to say, I don't care about self-control. Another extra piece of chicken wing or extra pizza is just going to feel good. And I don't think that each of those micro decisions was linked to something that happened in my childhood. I went through a very difficult childhood in the Lebanese Civil War, yet I don't blame my weight gain once I stopped being a soccer player to that tragic childhood. I could easily say, well, you know, that's what caused it. I faced such difficulties. It was so traumatic that that's why it happened. So what are your thoughts on the link between emotional trauma and overeating? Well, first, let me say that this is something that is multifactorial. And on, on Keeping It Real, I've interviewed addiction specialists and neuroscientists, psychiatrists, uh, psychoanalysts, and each one has a different way in. And I think they're all correct. So if you were to talk to Donna Anna, Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford, who's- Oh, yes. I just bought her book. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stay with me. Wait a second. Is it Dopamine Nation? Or did, is that the one you, yep. I just bought exactly. it. She's going to tell you, like, listen, we could talk about your mother all day long, but until we fix your brain chemistry, we're not going to get anywhere, right? You could talk to a neuroscientist who's going to say, oh, you know, you've turned to these, to these behaviors and now your brain is wired this way. And the reality is that we are under siege. We're being chemically addicted to processed garbage food and big food is hiring neuroscientists to addict us to this food. There is no question. And it will light up the dopamine centers of your brain like cocaine and nicotine. It proven, you're hundred percent right. But I do believe that we are psychologically hungry on some level. So they're exploiting that psychological hunger when we're stressed, when we're sad, when we're depressed, when we're lonely with dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Now, having said all of that, right, there, in my opinion, and my experience is without question for people that are addicted to food, there are links back. And I'll give you a few examples. And my mom happens to be a psychoanalyst. So 
my entire tenure on Biggest Loser, behind the scenes, she would help me try to help the people I was working with. But unfortunately, you know, it needs someone like my mom for a very concentrated period of time to help them get to the bottom of it. But here's an example of what I'm talking about. There was a boy on Biggest Loser who was 18 years old named Austin. And he showed up with his dad. It was like a partner season or something. And these guys had lost like a hundred pounds each in two months, but it was the holidays. So on Biggest Loser, they would always go home for the holidays, even though the show would frame it like, we just wanna see how you do at home. So they both go home for the holidays. All the contestants go home for the holidays. They all come back to the ranch. They all start weighing in. That one loses 10, this one loses eight, five, 15. Ken gets on the scale, the dad, he loses nothing. And everyone's like, oh, strange. Austin gets on the scale, the 18 year old, and he gained like five or six pounds. Immediately, the contestants start co-signing each other's bullshit, right? Oh, you're traveling, so hard to get the workout in. Oh, there's no healthy food at the airport. I'm like, all right, all of you shut the fuck up, <laughs> shut up. Next day, I sit down with Austin. I'm like, honey, walk me through it. Just take, we walk me through from when you leave to the moment you get back. And I get all the, you know, oh, there was no food at the airport. I didn't have time to get my steps, blah, 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 blah. Arrives at home. The door flies open. Everybody's there, including his mom, right? Big welcome party. His mom sees him and his father and starts sobbing. And I do not mean tears of joy because upon immediately seeing her much fitter husband and son, she is also overweight and she immediately feels abandoned like they broke the contract and she withdraws. So what does Austin do? Slams on the brakes with his weight loss and starts eating with his mother. What does the food provide him? An emotional connection to his mother. And he doesn't realize what it's providing him. And in my opinion, for Austin, at one time or another, that food meant his psychological survival because it's a primal abandonment should he give it up. So I think for some people, there are without question deeper factors there. Sexual abuse survivors, I think that food can represent coping mechanisms and defense structures for certain individuals. And that's an example. Yeah, I, th I think now that you're speaking, I think the way that I framed the question was too broad, as if emotional every, reasons, yeah. Every, yeah, it just, it is never an explicative cause. And of course that can't be right because as you said, it's, you know, every, almost every phenomenon that we can talk about is multifactorial. So I, I appreciate it. Got you. All right, let's move on. So we, I think we've covered a lot of <laughs> a lot of the people would want to hear about. Let's let's kind of segue into other possible areas. So when I when you were kind enough to invite me last time on on your show, it was to discuss happiness. In the times that I've spoken to you or seen you in 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 public settings, you always seem to have a radiant smile. You always seem to be happy. So I'm not even sure if anything that you read in my book was of any value because you have already, you know, Tons, actually. <laughs> so what is, Tons. what is your pathway? Are you, you know, what, is, is it something that you've had to work on? Uh, or is it something that, you know, you're innately a sunny disposition person? Is it a bit of both? Tell us your journey towards Mount Happiness. 
You know, you actually helped clarify for me what happiness is, because it isn't whistling zippity doo every single morning. You know, it is, it's having a partner that you love spending your life with. It's having a job that does bring purpose into your life. And I'm fortunate enough to have those things. I'm not prone to depression, so I'm, I'm very lucky with that, but I can be prone to a negative mindset. I, I'm very susceptible to outside influences on my mood. Um, and that is something that I, I have had to learn quite honestly, I hate to say this, but to tune out. And, you know, my wife and I were having an argument yesterday about what's going on in Israel. And she's telling me these horror stories. And I'm like, I don't know how many times I need to tell you. I don't want to fucking hear it. And she's like, you need to know what's going on in the world. I'm like, for what? What do you think I'm going to be able to do about this? This has been going on since the beginning of humanity. And then I'm like, and there's genocide here, and there's genocide there, and there's genocide over here, and we're, and then I'm like, we all just need to be extinct. Like, like I am very susceptible to that and I can become very nihilistic if I'm not careful. So some of it, I, I quite honestly have to tune out and live in the world that you talk about in the book of like my personal relationships, my work, you know, finding meaning, finding time to play, smelling the flowers, but it, it is it is something I have to work on because I can go down that rabbit hole fast. And I, I, you know, I really don't know why, but it's something I know that I'm, I'm susceptible to. Well, but just the mere fact that you've got the <laughs> introspective ability, that's already half the battle won because the, you know, many people don't have that ability, right? So how, you know, the, to use the old cliche, you first have to recognize that there's a problem before you can do something right. about it. So the fact that at least, you know, you're susceptible to that negative mindset and that nihilism, I, I think you said, uh, yeah. allows you to then set up the, the the strategies to inoculate yourself against those outside forces that you can't control. Is there a way for us to teach people how to be more introspective? I'm going to say that's your job. That's why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be quoting you and your book on that because I am the farthest thing from an expert. I honestly think that my answer would be the true layman's, which is if something upsets you, it's okay. It's an Easter egg hunt for me. And here's what I mean by that. Do you remember? I, I don't know if, no, because you're Jewish, but I still had Easter egg hunts. My parents didn't subscribe me to any kind of religion. I had, I got all the holidays. So I'm, I'm grateful to them for that. So my mom would hide eggs all over the house. And of course, as a fat kid, I would run around the house and be so excited, but you get closer to a hidden egg and you'd be warmer, right? The farther away you would get from it, the colder you would be. I try to play this game in my relationships of does this friendship make me feel better? Like, am I warmer? Okay, yeah, this friendship makes me feel good. Let me cultivate that relationship. Does it make me feel bad? This probably isn't a friendship for me. And I don't mean hard work, right? Does it make you feel bad about yourself? Are they making you feel left out? Are they marginalizing you? Are they passive aggressive with you? Is the dynamic unhealthy for you? Is it, you know, same thing with your work, same thing with your hobbies. If there's something you love to do, do more of it. If you find that it's bringing you peace. 
So I try to take this inventory all the time. The news upsets the hell out of me. So I just don't, I don't care. Call me ignorant. I don't want to know. I will never unravel whether we should be funding Ukraine or not. I have no fucking idea and I have no control over it anyway. I can't, I can't. So I just don't, right? right. But the stuff that makes me happy, like cat videos on Instagram, <laughs> like perfect. You can watch the news. I'm going to watch a cat video on Instagram because that makes me laugh. I, that's how I kind of do it is by taking this emotional inventory with my relationships and my activities. And if something makes me feel good in a way I know is obviously healthy, I do more of it. If it makes me feel bad, I take space from it. I think, so your answer demonstrated, so to use the fancy language, epistemic humility, right? Because what you said, hey, you just asked me a question. I'm not sure that I've got the answer to it and I don't have the expertise to it. Guess what? Answering that way builds trust because it's authentic, right? So I think one of the secrets to why, you know, you resonate with so many people is because when they listen to you, they don't see a peddler of potential bullshit because, right? by the way, that's, if I if I can speak about myself, I think that's something Please. that I also am able to do, which is if you ask yeah. me a question about something that I truly feel confident about, I will answer you with all of the swagger that comes with me knowing that I know what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, there's a million things that you could ask me about that I absolutely know probably less than nothing about. Therefore, I never try to wing it. Because if I try, if I try to wing it, and you catch me, we both have pretty big, large audiences where people are attuned to every one of your syllables. And it takes a nanosecond of miscalibration on your part to lose all of the capital of trust that people have built for you, right? And therefore, always be truthful. If you know, speak with authority. If you don't know, bow your head and say, you know what? You got me on this one. It's above my pay grade. And then people will flock to you because they see you as a truth peddler. I certainly hope so. I, I think it comes from fear because <laughs> you and I are in a position where we have huge targets on our backs. And I have learned quite honestly, after I read Parasitic Mind and had that dialogue with you, that when I am an expert in something, I can plant my feet firmly and shout from the mountaintop because I'm so damn confident and I fact check everything. I have experts with PhDs and MDs, double board certified. I go to the well, give me all the knowledge I need. Let me form an opinion based on that. And then I can expand on my opinion with confidence. But when I do not have that expertise, I, I'm like, I don't need to take the bullets for this. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it, it becomes, but that really was clarified for me after you and I had that first conversation when I had read Parasitic Mind. I was like, okay, great. Here I can be supremely confident. Here I need to take a back seat. Beautiful. Oh, what a beautiful answer. Uh, okay, let's talk. So towards the end of my happiness book, I, talk, I have a whole chapter on regret. And there I talk about yeah. the difference between regret due to actions versus regret due to inactions. By the way, that taxonomy is not mine. It's actually one of my former uh, professors in, in my PhD program. His name is Thomas Gilovich, who really pioneered that distinction. Now, it turns out, uh, Jill, that over the long run, most people's looming regret is one due to inaction. So just to, to explain in a concrete sense to, to our listeners, uh, 
regret due to action would be I regret that I cheated on my wife and that led mm -hmm. to the dissolution of my marriage. So I, I did something and now I regret it. Regret due to inaction is I regret that I never pursued my interest in art and I never became an artist. I became a pediatrician because my dad is a pediatrician and I really hate medicine. And I, I regret that I didn't live an authentic life, the one that 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 tickles my fancy. And people's greatest regrets tend to be over the long run for things that they didn't do, the, the path that yeah. they didn't take. So if I were to ask you, you're still a young woman, you still have many years ahead of you, knock on wood. If I were to ask you today, what's your most looming regret or regrets? What would you answer? I am a woman of action in my younger years, almost impulsively. So there are very few things that I have not done. I've dealt with the mistakes of doing them wrong. Um, you know, and the biggest one of those uh, changed the course of my career. And I'm a big supplement person. I advocate for supplements all day long. Personally, I take them. You don't have to. I like them a lot. They give me that little edge, right? If we if we were to go for a hack with regard to health or weight loss, they provide it. And I've always experimented with different supplements and nutrients to improve my performance, to enhance my metabolism. So I'd written a book called Making the Cut, and I talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of weight loss supplements, right? Or pills that people were taking. Book was a huge bestseller, and I decided I wanted to come up with my own fat burner. And it was all organic. It was like, it had you know beets and green tea and coffee and the whole, everything was clean. Nevertheless, it ended up doing really well, and we got hit with the fake class action lawsuit that said I was killing people and I had sold out. And of, of course, it was all dismissed. The, the class action, the person at the head of the class never even bought the products, but no one prints that it's all dismissed. And everybody just goes, oh my God, the woman that I trusted was a fraud. She sold out. She did this. She did that. She said pills. And it was a whole, it was a shit show. And I wish that I had stopped and thought, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong here? It was the biggest mistake of my entire fucking career. That and bad legal advice. And that comes from two things. One, impulsivity, not thinking things through. And two, with bad legal advice, I feel that people can become intimidated by things they don't understand, whether it's their healthcare, their legal advice, or their finances. So they opt out of the conversation and hand it off to somebody else. And that is devastating. I've dealt with many catastrophes outside of healthcare because of my attitude there. And I regret that and have subsequently changed. Um, if I was to have a inaction regret, it hasn't occurred yet, but I, I fight it like crazy. And that's getting to the end of my life and thinking like, should I have gone to one more soccer game? You know what I mean? <laughs> like with the kids or one more spring sing and I make it to like, I don't know, a third of them because there's so many of them. And it's like you have to work and you're, you know, you're juggling all these balls and you think, but I'm the one that has to work. I have to pay for everything. Like I have to do these things. I have to travel for work. I have to. And then I wonder, am I really going to hate myself for this? That's the part that scares me. So I, I try so hard to like, find a balance, but it does worry me. Is there gonna be the soccer game that I miss and the kids hate me for? 
So that's the one that I, I'm a little concerned about. I, I mean, from a doing. from a parental regret perspective, my my only regret so far, and may it hopefully be the only one that I ever experienced, <sighs> is that I regret that. Uh, so my I speak four languages, and my wife speaks three. Uh, two so. Two of the languages I speak, she doesn't speak. And one of the languages, so she speaks Armenian, I don't. I speak Arabic and Hebrew, and she doesn't. So between the two of us, we cover five languages. And yet our children only really, you know, I mean, they might recognize little words here and there, but they I mean, fluently only speak French and English. And I really regret that because I feel that the amount of, I, mean, I don't know if, I don't think the right word would be gravitas, but the, the amount of power that being able to speak many languages affords you is simply extraordinary. So, you know, let's, yeah. so for example, talking about the, 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 what's happening in the Middle East now, the fact that I am an Arabic speaker, that Arabic is my mother tongue, allows me to right away bond with people that otherwise might have been difficult to bond with because we come from different, you know, religions and different probably political persuasions, but simply having in that Venn diagram, the intersect intersection of our linguistic heritage removes a lot of the barriers and so you know i'm able to you know go on an arabic show and suddenly there are millions of people that would have otherwise never heard of my story in lebanon that have heard it because i speak you know fluent arabic so that would probably be my regret is this i, I mean i guess you can't have such a regret in the united states because not to be stereotypical most people barely speak one language properly you know, you say that, but I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who's Chinese and her, I met her little six-year-old the other day. And I was like, does she speak Chinese? Does she speak Mandarin? She's like, no. And my friend is from China. And I was like, dude, so many of my adult friends whose parents were from Italy or Puerto Rico or Venezuela, they don't speak Spanish or Italian. And my father, whose parents came over from Lebanon and Syria. He doesn't speak Arabic at all. Wow. And I wonder if it's because, I don't know, you'd have to, you'd have to tell me, but it's so very common what you're talking about. So very I'm, think common. I'm thinking that if one wants to be charitable about it, it's, hey, you're moving to a new land, put away all the other stuff, assimilate yourself. So in, in that sense, that reflex is quite noble, right? Uh, right. Put away your religious heritage, put away... But you could still fully assimilate in the new experiment into the, your new host country without losing the really rich elements of your history, right? I, I mean, I love falafel and hummus. That doesn't mean that I'm not fully Canadian, right? So I can take the beautiful parts of my heritage, uh, the, the bad parts, right? If, if your heritage says that women should be subjugated or this is what should be done to uh, uh, members of the LGBTQ community. Please keep those values at the door when you come in. <laughs> but your spices, right. your language, your hummus, bring that in. It's going to make us a richer society, right? A hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's what we celebrated about America, in my opinion, is that we were supposed to be this incredible melting pot. And now, unfortunately, I believe that we're becoming more and more segregated, um, which is just, I don't know, again, a rabbit hole I can go down and get pretty depressed about. But I think that's the whole, that was the whole idea is that it was this beautiful blending of cultures that was kind of supposed to be the point. That was what was so exciting about America.
Let, let's and freedom, but let's, yeah. let's stay positive so that we don't go down a negative. <laughs> and let's talk okay, about culture. You ready where I'm going? It's the N word, Namibia. That's where we're going ah, next, Jillian Michael. Okay. Now, perfect. So now here before, let me set up the the, the question. Uh, you recently got married. I think your honeymoon was in Namibia. Yes. And yeah. and uh, and it turns out that that's a big, you know, bridge be between between the two of us. In that, unbeknownst to me that you had been to Namibia, I only found this out when you know doing my homework uh, about your recent past. Uh, I've been wanting to go to Namibia because I think we talked about this offline when I appeared on your show last time. I have this fascination with this particular, I mean, there's, there is the desert lions, but even more mythical is the long haired desert hyena of Namibia. And uh, I'm a huge animal lover. And so I've always had this kind of mythological fantasy of going and seeing the ghosts of the Namibian desert in person. And so I've got a sabbatical coming up in January and I'm hoping to organize a trip. So tell us everything that we need to know about the magic of Namibia. Take it away. <sighs> Namibia is unlike any other part of Africa that I have been to. Um, I personally find it to be the most magical continent. I'm obsessed with it. I've been um, to the Congo, Uganda, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South wow. Africa, Namibia. I, I love it. I always, always go back. Typically it's professional just, or just for, for pleasure, um, for personal? Just for pleasure. But uh, I went to the Congo for with the UNHCR on a refugee trip. United Nations Refugee Agency. Um, I actually wanted to work with regard to what was going on in Syria because I was like, I, I have Syrian blood, and they're like, Yeah, no, we've got Ben Stiller and Angelina Jolie on that. <laughs> if you could go to the Congo, that'd be great. I was like, All right, sure. So that was one of the reasons I, I ended up in the Congo. But um, Namibia, the reason I bring up all those different places is because it is unlike any other part of the continent that I've seen to date. And it's where the desert meets the sea. Um, it feels otherworldly, I'll be exactly, honest with you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you feel like you've just landed on a different planet. Uh, so whether you're climbing these massive, majestic sand dunes, or you're going to the Skeleton Coast, which I believe is one of the most dangerous stretches of coastline in the world littered with shipwrecks and whale bones and these crazy huge seal colonies and then you're watching like jackals kill baby seals i was sobbing by the way i hate i love africa hate the kill the kill yeah, makes I know. me miserable and i always like i always see one which is so frustrating uh so um that and the, the sand is purple and you can go from riding ATVs in the dunes to you do not go on the water, but you could take like a helicopter ride along the coast. It is so diverse and so incredible and such an interesting intersection of wildlife and landscapes that I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. And you'll still see the lions and the elephants and the black rhino. They're, they're there without question. Less... Um, in lesser numbers, as you might find, obviously, in, in like the Okavanga Delta. Right. But it is truly magical and unique without question. 
Well, how were the 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 people? I mean, are they set up for tourists? Is there a, or very is it much so? Very much so. So they were a German um, colonized by the Germans. So you know, for better or worse, everything is very organized. <laughs> Not to, not to make a sweeping generalization, but the truth is everything is kind of very organized, very safe. The people are lovely. Um, they coexist very well. And, you know, you could go to obviously different countries in Africa and things are not so stable. You know, South Africa is not very safe right now. Um, but here they... It, it, at least when I was there last summer, they're all coexisting very well. Um, and you could not feel more safe. The people are lovely, but I have found everywhere in Africa, the people to be lovely, which is one of the things I love about Africa. Namibia is no different. Um, so I'll say that I find, oh, they're right on the border of Angola, which is really cool. Cause if you go up to the border, uh, along the river and you can see the huge crocodiles nice. it's it's pretty it's pretty magical i think africa in general though really falls under that umbrella because the creatures are just incredible the landscapes are dramatic the people are lovely the history is devastating but they somehow managed to contend with it and it's you know i guess if we were to look at other parts of the world it would be equally as rife with conflict um but in most places they manage it pretty well and they they inspire me because i'm thinking my god if you went through this right clearly i can survive x y or z right. um, so i just find it to be inspirational and awe-inspiring in every way and namibia is by far the most unique place i have been to in africa right. Well, I mean, so two, two quick points. Number one, in the United States, uh, you know, I visited quite a bit of the United States and New Mexico is rightly titled Land of Enchantment because when you visit some of the landscapes in New Mexico, it yeah. does feel otherworldly. And while I've never been to Namibia, many of the images, that's what draws me, it exactly speak to what you described in your in the opening of your, of your uh, response to my question, which is it feels like you've landed on another in another yeah. dimension and i'm so attracted to this second point one of, so i have and you may or may not remember this in the first chapter of the parasitic mind i talk about my i think adaptive phobia of mosquitoes and i say adaptive because no animal no no crocodile or no or no lion or no polar bear has killed remotely as many people i mean in the order of thousands of magnitudes greater yeah. than mosquitoes. And so oftentimes when I'm thinking about visiting a place, it's based on the mosquito density. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I think one of the things that draws me to Namibia is that because it is a desert, because it's very dry, you know, the, the, the mosquito index in Namibia is going to be much more in my favor than in some other places in Africa where given my phobia, I better never yeah. set foot in. Does that make sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. Um, I don't think I got one bite in there. Namibia. You go. Although, to be honest, depending on where you are in Africa, um, or what time you go, yeah. makes a huge difference. Yeah. In Miami, I I carried twenty bites on my body at all times, yeah. and my mother's in Los Angeles, and she's like, "The mosquitoes here have den fever." I'm like, "Do you mean de den 
I never, what's Den Fever? Den Fever? No, Den Fever. I'm getting pictures of welts. These suckers are omnipresent and torture, torture, little mini torture devices. So I, I totally agree with you, but I would venture to say in Namibia, you're safer than Los Angeles and Miami. There you go. Go and have a blast. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question, although of course I could keep you another five hours chatting. What are some current projects that you're working on? Next book, next app, next television series that's making you wake up in the morning and rub your hands in anticipation. If you're willing to share with us, take it away. Of course. I Listen, I can't promise that any of them will end up coming to fruition because it's, it's harder and harder these days um, to kind of bring something all the way through the bases to home plate. But there is a TV show that we're developing and it is about tackling obesity on that myriad of fronts that you and I discussed, right? And not just getting weight off of people because the irony is that it isn't really a weight loss show. It's about fixing the biochemical addiction, the behaviors and the, neuro, uh, the, the neuroscience that goes behind kind of brainwashing people into different attitudes uh dealing with it with regard to fitness and nutrition so just this very 360 comprehensive approach we and i say we because i have a business partner um, and we run a company together we continue to form strategic partnerships whether it's affordable wearables um, a line of fitness equipment relationships at walmart or qvc to get fitness clothes etc basically accessible affordable options to the things that people need to i don't need but can help facilitate them staying fit so partnerships along those lines investing in different companies that i think are doing better for you versions of our favorite stuff so whether it's an organic coffee company or a water company or a supplement company or a spin gym i will invest in those companies and try to help grow those brands. Uh, I try to put my money where I would like to see things expand in my field. You know, I don't invest in uh, companies in the stock market that sell drugs to people and tobacco and no Philip Morris stock in my portfolio. So instead I, I try to invest in the things I believe in that will do better for other people. Um, and let's see, I mean, honestly, I don't think books work in my area anymore because people are very caught up in blogs and vlogs and it's all free. So I've been focused more on writing op-eds in mm -hmm. my area of expertise. So whether it's on Ozempic or obesity being branded as a medical disease of the brain or, you know, the way that our healthcare system has been corrupted by big pharma. Those are the, the messages that I'm trying to expose people to, because I just think if we can unplug people from the matrix one by one and show them that they are empowered to take control, mm -hmm. that's really all, that's really all we have, right? We're never going to take down big pharma. We're never going to change people lobbying our politicians and we're not going to change the system. That's never going to happen. Never, the David and Goliath thing, David dies here. Not gonna happen. <laughs> but if if David can wake up one person at a time, that's what I'm endeavoring to do through all of these different avenues. 
Well, continued success. I hope I, I often make it to Southern California. And so hopefully uh, next time that I'm there, we can hang out. Maybe we can go oh, for goodness. a run and make me look like a buffoon while we run on the <laughs> beach. Because uh, while I'm in pretty good shape, uh, I'd be going against the Messi, the Lionel Messi of fitness. So uh, please be <laughs> gentle on me if we do train exactly. together. Uh, I would love it. Continued success. Best of luck in your future. And uh, I look forward to having this up and also my appearance on your show up, which I'll be happy to share on my uh, social media. Thank you so much, Jill. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. What a delight to Absolutely. talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Cheers. Mm-hmm.